Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your long-suffering, Lord. And we just pray today that you would bless us through your word and that you would give us things we've probably never seen before, Lord, as you reveal them through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we pray for anybody in the church that's away and sick. We pray for their healing, recovering time and all of that, Lord. And we just uh, pray for Calvary Chapel Lakeside in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. I think a lot of Exodus is known by a lot of people. Um, Arguably, the best-known Bible story is that of Moses leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt and going before Pharaoh before that and saying, let my people go, right? Charlton Heston. And uh, he made a good Moses. He had the voice. He had everything going. Um, So the Exodus story is literal. It's not um, a metaphor or an allegory. It's an actual fact-for-fact story. That's very important to know because it gives credence to it, and, and it lets us know that this story was part of the nation of Israel and how they were formed and how they moved and how they came together and how they went through this 40 years in the wilderness and then went out through uh, the Jordan River on the other side and into Jericho. So uh, the book was written by Moses. Uh, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And, uh, and, and the fact is that even Jesus recognized this book in the, in the New Testament. He, he referenced it. So the events of the book took place in the 16th and 15th centuries B.C. I have to say that backwards because we're moving down in numbers rather than up. So, and cover a little more than 215 years. It's quite a long time. The events of the book uh, are there, and Moses relates the story as an eyewitness account, because he was there. So we know it's factual. We know it's true. We know the details are very much what he experienced. So throughout its history, Israel has always considered the story to be historical fact. It's part of the history. They teach it to their children and children's children, and it's a a great story. It's a a story of being uh, saved. It's a story of being, uh, God being faithful to them and doing all the different things he did. So later writers in scripture refer back to the story of Israel leaving Egypt, uh, meeting the Lord at the mountain, entering the period of the desert, and wandering around for 40 years. Must have been quite a trip. In the book of Acts, Stephen recounts the story of Israel, including a literal exodus. Jesus himself spoke of this in the appearance of Moses and the giving of the law as a literal account. The New Testament letter authors included many references to the book of Exodus. And uh, only Psalms and Isaiah are quoted more uh, than the book of Exodus in the Bible. That's kind of interesting. So it's an important book. A literal understanding of the book gives added power to it and significance. Um, to the prophetic picture of it, of what's going to happen ahead. And the Exodus story is incredibly rich in pictures of sin, redemption, baptism, the kingdom, and judgment. 
Exodus is especially rich in the pictures of Christ and his redemptive work. We can always find Jesus in the Bible, no matter where we are, no matter what book it is. Above all, the story of Exodus is the story of God's sovereignty to accomplish the purge, uh, his purposes through the lives of men. And that's how God works. He accomplishes his purposes through our lives, through the lives of everybody. You know, he gives us the way. He shows us the way. He tells us the way to go. Um, like any other book of the scripture, a proper understanding depends on our knowledge of scripture and how much we study it and how much we know it. And to some degree, our familiarity with the ancient history. We have to be so conscious of Israel because they're going to be so important today and in the future. And it's not a bad idea even beyond the Bible to study history and what's going on and how that country came together in 1948 and everything going on since then. Six-day war, the war of Yom Kippur, all of that. And, and see how God worked amazingly in these people that should have got overrun by Egypt and other countries, Jordan. But they didn't. They turned the tide on them because why? Because God is with them. So, um, Even a cursory look at the book of Exodus demonstrates a clear dependence on the book of Genesis. So when he's writing it, Moses is looking back into Genesis as he's writing Exodus. And for that matter, the entire story of Exodus is made necessary because of the events in Genesis. You know, everything that was said, everything that was done, the family coming together, the 12 tribes being formed, and then uh, eventually the story of them going to Egypt as a family. And then they stayed there until they had to get out and and, uh, go on God's plan. So there's really six parts of the book. um, But in the beginning, it's really the call of Moses in chapters 1 through 4. So, why don't we start in chapter 1, learning some important Jewish history. Um, I'll read the first seven verses here. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came came each one with his household. In verse 2, Reuben, Simeon, Levi is going to name the different sons. And Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied, became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Even in the book, In the very first chapter in Genesis, the Lord told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Then he destroyed the world except for eight righteous people, Noah and his sons and his daughter-in-laws. But from that began the the beginning of the world again, okay? And now that they're in um, Egypt, they're taking God serious, and they're being blessed. They're having families, they're having children. They're set off by themselves. Uh, The Egyptians don't want them around. We mentioned that last week because they were shepherds. For some reason, they didn't like shepherds. But now we're going to see 
Moses, the author, recounts the history of Israel because it's so important. History of our lives is important. We look back at our genealogy and our family. Where do we come from? We look back to our parents, our grandparents. Maybe they came from a different country. You know, my parents came from Ireland. So you go back there and you go back and you start looking, who am I? Where did I come from? You know, it's kind of an amazing thing to do if you do it because you'll find people in your history that kind of interesting, very, very interesting. You've heard talk about them probably, but you never met them. And then you start going back and you get details from, from different things. And it's amazing the story that you can put together for your own family. So Moses is referring back to the story originated in Genesis chapter 46. According to Genesis 46, Israel left Canaan and brought all his descendants with him. Uh, this is Jacob. His family included his 11 sons and counting Joseph, who was already living in Egypt. So Jacob's grandsons and granddaughters were also included. According to verse 5, Israel's family numbered 70 altogether. So in Genesis 46, 26, I'll, I'll just read it. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, was 66 persons in all. So we have to do a little math here. In uh, verse 27 of Genesis 46, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Plus Jacob, plus Joseph and his two sons. Um, after all the descendants of Jacob were 66, but then we read the next verse. And we see um, the persons of Jacob's house was 70, um, like Exodus. The difference is simple, and Moses makes it clear why. And in verse 26, he describes all those who descended from Jacob and came to Egypt in response to Joseph's call, which was the Lord's way of moving the nation out of Canaan and into Egypt. So um, later in Acts... Um, Stephen describes the family of Jacob as having 75 people, so you wonder what that difference is. His number includes the five grandsons of Joseph, born to Manasseh and Ephraim. So those are the, this is where they're starting out. This is where it's all beginning. As you may remember, Joseph's story was central to how the nation of Israel ended up in Egypt. Joseph was sold into bondage by his brothers. We talked about that last week. Later, Joseph rises to power as the second most powerful man in Egypt. And during a time of famine, the sons of Jacob come seeking relief, and uh, he gives it to them. And then there's a short recap of how God brought Israel. Uh, and uh, why did God bring Israel into Egypt? You know, that's the big question. Why did God cause Israel to leave Canaan and dwell in a foreign land? just to move them about? No, it's, it's a bigger reason than that. Why did God allow Israel to become enslaved there? That's an even greater question. The answer for why Israel comes in two, two parts. The first part of the answer is found much earlier than the story of Joseph, all the way back to Noah. I just mentioned that a minute ago. After the flood, there were three sons ex- exit the ark, and they camped near the ark. And... Um, then one night, um, Noah drinks too much. We see that, right? And he's up naked in front of his tent, passed out. 
So one of his sons, Ham, enters the tent and finds his father naked. And this was a no-no. I mean, uh, later he tells his brothers what he found and takes pleasure in sharing the story. Like it's uh, this thing amongst men, you know. It's like, it's uh, just one of those things. But Noah's other sons act properly, covering the father's shame without looking upon his nakedness. So when Noah discovers that Ham had treated him with contempt, Noah is stirred to pronounce a prophetic judgment. And that's in reality Noah pronounces judgment uh, God himself inspired for his eternal purposes. So since all three sons of Noah were God-fearing, Noah doesn't condemn him, Ham. Instead, Noah condemns Ham's son, Canaan. In Genesis 9.24, it says, uh, When Noah woke from his wine, he knew that his youngest son had done to him. So he said in verse 25 of that, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. This is the beginning to get them out. Okay, but it's starting way back uh, for the most part, long before they even got there. God planned so far ahead and so far ahead of today and so far ahead into eternity that we can't even capture that kind of thinking. So with those words, Noah condemned the entire line of Canaan. The word for cursed is Arar, which means to bring to an end. So basically, uh, the line of Canaan is cursed, and um, it's a prophetic statement made by Noah. So, moving along here. The Lord had told Abraham also that his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not their own for 400 years. He told them about it before even they went into the land. Years and years and years before. Furthermore, they would be enslaved and oppressed for a time in that foreign land. I mean, this was all known, you know. At the end of the period, God would judge the nation that oppressed Israel. He would come against Egypt. We're going to read all about, I mean, on Saturday, we're doing this on Saturday morning, so my, my brain is halfway there, thinking about what we're going to be studying each Saturday, you know, with the men. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there but all the things that um, God brings against the nation to get the people out. And Pharaoh is such a hard rock heart that he doesn't want to move, but, but the Lord hardens his heart. He wants them to learn a lesson. He wants the nation of Israel to see what's going on. So, and then slowly but surely, uh, he finally gives up. And the interesting thing, I think, of one of the things about uh, Pharaoh was when the frogs came, frogs were like a god to uh, Egypt, and they worshipped them. They worshipped a lot of stuff, strange stuff. So when the frogs came and they covered the whole land, and they were in the homes, and they were in the, you can imagine what that would be, right? They smell, they're icky, you know. Um, Moses comes and asks Pharaoh, says, when do you want these frogs gone? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. That tells you where he is. It's amazing, huh? It's like, I'd be like, hey, get him out of here now, man, because he's got people yelling and screaming. I'm sure people are, like, coming to him saying, hey, just let those people go. But it's not working out that way. So he's hard-hearted, and he says, I can take another day. So God gives him another day. So God promised Abraham that the nation that blesses Israel will be blessed. This is in the Abrahamic covenant. While the nation that curses Israel will be cursed. 
And again, you know, we are a nation that's right here with Israel. We need to be there, especially in these times ahead. We need to be side by side. We need to be brothers and sisters to them. And God is going to do some great things in that country. And there's a lot of people that want to wipe them out. Who knows what's going to happen in the next four years? We don't know, you know. Might be a lot of changes and stuff like that. But as a nation, we need to be with them. We need to be supporting them. Because, um, uh, you know, these are God's chosen people. You know, and we want to be blessed. We don't want to be cursed. And if you look at the nations that came against them previously, you can see what happened to them. They got destroyed. They're not powerful. Um, they were overtaken. Okay. But God protects those who protects his also, and we are his also. So when Egypt was friendly to Israel, the nation of Egypt prospered. When Egypt turned against Israel, they eventually met judgment by the hand of God. So this is a good example of that. So in the fourth generation, Israel returned to Canaan four generations later, which totaled almost 400 years. But Abraham's great-great-grandfather returned to Canaan to receive the land God has set aside for them. So, um, moving along, God is not suggesting that the Canaanite sin was insufficient to warrant God bringing eternal judgment for the sin. Um, but God isn't talking about an eternal judgment movement, though certainly all the Canaanite people faced judgment when they died. So why is God waiting to bring the earthly judgment he promised for the Canaanite people and give the land to Israel? The answer is God determined that the sinful would receive judgment in the hands of the Jewish people. This is where he, where he decided to do it. But at that point, God reveals the plan to Abraham. Israel isn't even a nation yet. The nation gets slowly at first. It comes, comes on slowly. So the first reason God sends Israel into Egypt is to multiply them in a fertile land to get their numbers up so that when they exit, they're going to be a, a standing army. And some people say a million, some people say two million, if you count the women and children and all of that. That's a huge amount of people. So in chapter one of Exodus tells us the story of Israel multiplying. And then in verse six and seven that we just read that, after Joseph and his brothers die, the nation remains fruitful and increases, still increases. That blessing is still there. In fact, in that verse, there's a repetition of the increase to add emphasis, just so that, you know, it gives emphasis to what, what's being said. Fruitful, increased greatly and exceeding mightily. The land of Goshen was filled with them. It's a big area. So Israel was living in the fertile valley of Goshen where the Pharaoh assigned them to live. They had food. They had everything going for them. But why did God want Israel to include a foreign land, incubate a foreign land, and more specifically, why did Israel need to uh, be enslaved during that time? There's a reason that, that God has for everything. So the second reason for that comes from Genesis 38, from the story of Judah. As we noted earlier tonight, or today, the story of Joseph began in chapter 37 with uh, his descent into Egypt. 
And then Joseph's story picks up again in chapter 39 in the house of Potiphar. Remember when he was uh, his servant and then his wife made false accusations. He ends up in, in jail. Interrupting Joseph's story is a single chapter telling the story of Jude, Judah and Tamar. And this is basically when uh, they cross over the lines that a, a, a man, Judah, would take a Canaanite woman for a wife. And this is the thing that probably was the main reason why uh, God took them into Egypt, was to keep them from being able to marry and have children. And once it starts, it would have continued to go on. So God decided he's going to take that and move them out. So God goes a couple of steps further to protect the nation of Israel. First, he isolated them from the Egyptians during their initial years. They lived in Goshen to a remote section of the country. And secondly, God determined that Israel would become slaves in Egypt. As slaves, Israel was precluded from marrying with the Egyptian culture, so they wouldn't be hanging out together, they wouldn't be doing things together, they wouldn't know each other for that basis. So this was the reason why they separated in Egypt themselves, so that, they, again, that they would be by themselves. So we go and now look at verse 8. Now, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The whole family of Joseph is dead. They passed away. So at first glance, this is an odd statement when you consider how prominent Joseph must have been. Um, We should expect that the story of Joseph would have been handed down and known from generation to generation, you know, because talking about the ancestry and how we get to know our families. But we should expect that the story of Joseph would have been handed down, but after all, we're still talking about them today. So it was handed down in a, a little bit different way. The answer is that a regime change had occurred in Egypt. This was going to set the the nation of Israel apart in a different way. This new regime didn't know anything about Joseph. They didn't know anything about the way that he was the uh, prime minister, number two. They didn't look at this. All they were thinking of was the power that they had at that moment and what they were going to do with it. And they saw the nation of Israel, all the Israelites, growing, and they were... They were expanding probably larger than the Egyptians. They started looking at that, and they got worried about it because of the numbers. And they saw that they were healthy, and they saw that the land was great, and God was blessing them. So when Joseph came to Egypt, he entered the land during the 16th dynasty. The 13th to 17th dynasties were ruled by a people called the Hykos. These people were not Egyptians but foreign from the region of Haran, in the, in the Fertile Crescent. They conquered the Egyptians in 1670 B.C. It's part of their history. The Hysaks were Semitic people descended from Noah's son, Shem. So they originally started out with the family of Noah. They shared the same family origin as the Hebrew people, but the people of Egypt were Hamites, descended from Noah's son, Ham. 
So these Semites were the rulers over Egypt, but they themselves were not Egyptians. They were Hamites. The Egyptians hated the Hesach's conquerors and Semites in general. Naturally, the Hesach's themselves were welcoming to other Semite people who desired to immigrate into Egypt. And the presence of other Semites in the land helped strengthen the Hesach's land uh, rule over the nation and over the Egyptian people. So this really explains why Joseph was elevated into power. A little bit more of a background, because he was a Hebrew. So they knew this, and they had a, a liking for Hebrews. There's always a reason why things happen in a certain way. And um, when you look into it and look into the history, you see that because Joseph was a Hebrew, he got special treatment. Even though he started out on the left foot, he ended up totally being uh, revered by these people, even though they knew he, he wasn't one of them. As a fellow Semite, Joseph was welcome uh, early to the high, high coast ruling. Furthermore, when the Pharaoh learned that Joseph had more family in Canaan, the Pharaoh immediately welcomed them in. Why? Because they were family. They were part of the same uh, ancestry. So Joseph knew that the Native Egyptians would not have received his family warmly, uh, so he suggests that Pharaoh give his family a remote corner in Egypt to set up in. And here we see the way God ensured that Israel remained separate from the Egyptians while living in the land. There's a lot of reasons why this happens. Eventually, the Hikos reign came to an end. It ended. You know, they, they grew old, they passed away. The 17th Dynasty was overthrown by an Egyptian called Amos, who establishes himself as Pharaoh of the 18th Dynasty. Okay, so you can see some things going on here. Um, Amos was a Hamite, a native Egyptian, so he restored Egypt to Egyptian rule. So it came back. Um, Amos was a, uh, he he came to power in 1570 BC. This is the the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, uh, mentioned in verse 8. He didn't know him. He had no knowledge of him. You know, these were not friendly to them. He was ignorant of Joseph because he was not a descendant of the previous line of pharaohs. You'd think that would pass along, but it became a different line. It's a different route completely. Um, instead, he represented a new dynasty, or house of rule, one that had no connection to past dynasties and its allies. It's like starting all over again. And he's looking and saying, who are these guys? Look at them. Look at how great they are. Look at the numbers they have. Look at how God blesses their cattle and their food and all this other stuff. And they're not even talking about the same God. Um, the 18th dynasty is considered the height of the Egyptian power. This is when Egypt was at its best. This was the first dynasty where kings called themselves Pharaoh. They didn't call themselves kings. <clears throat> Excuse me. The new dynasty arrival resulted in an immediate change in the prospects for a Semite living in Egypt. Excuse me one sec. I could reach that water. Thank you. That's a private thing between me and Pat. Um, the new dynasty's arrival resulted in an immediate change 
in the prospects for a Semite living in Egypt. Amos' forces killed or ran out of town any Semites in the previous dynasty. They ran them out. Those that remained in the land were enslaved. They were made slaves. So this is the fate experienced by Joseph's descendants. It's good to understand that and say, why all of a sudden did they make them slaves? Well, it was the plan. It happened and the, the nature of the family moving forward. So we'll go into verse 9 through 14. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply in the event of war. They will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So he's worried. You know, they have enemies. Are they going to hook up with these guys and be an even more powerful force? So he's, he's very afraid of that. So they appointed taskmasters. These are like people with whips or whatever, and they're, they're lauding over these people and giving them things uh, to afflict them with hard labor. Probably physically also they were affected. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. They were working hard. I mean, this is not 2020. This is back when things were a lot harder. Even just making bricks was hard with the straw and everything like that. And later in the story, we're going to find out how Pharaoh took that away from the nation of Israel when they were building different things. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And that means like hard labor, you know, pushing them hard. You know, you got three bricks today, I want four bricks out of you tomorrow. The next day we're going to double, it's going to be eight. They didn't give them any respect and they didn't give them anything. They treated them strictly as slaves. They had no rights. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. Hard, hard labor. It's like the chain gangs in the U.S. and the South breaking rocks. See that years and years ago when people went to prison down in the South, they put them out on the, in breaking rocks. I mean, breaking rocks all day is a hard job. This is kind of similar to that. Okay, so Pharaoh... Amos tells the Egyptians they had reason to fear them, fear the Hebrews. In verse 9, the English translation is kind of a little bit weak. It says that the Hebrews are more and mightier than the Egyptian. But Israel didn't outnumber all Egyptians. The correct translation would read, Israel is too numerous and mighty. In other words, they have a lot of people and they're strong. Amos is concerned with so many Semites still living in the land. His rule is threatened. You know, it's all about keeping the rule. It's like um, the leader of North Korea. You know, he stands by himself up there. And nobody can get away with anything in that country today. This concentration camps, this what you see in the news or what you see in anything is nothing like what that country is. It's, it's, um, this man is treating his own countrymen and his own people in a really, really bad way. And this is what uh, the Egyptians are doing to the Israelis. Amos appoints taskmasters, enslaving them in hard labor. The work of the Jews um, was responsible for creating important cities, Ramses, Pithom. It was also called 
Heliopolis. So the labor of the Hebrews was certainly beneficial to, to the Pharaoh. His primary motivation for enslaving them wasn't to get free labor. His main concern was in stopping the growth of the people. They didn't want them to, to have as many children. They didn't, he didn't want them to have time to have any children, that kind of thing, or even take care of the children that they had. Usually hard labor will decrease the strength of people and reduce their numbers. I don't know if you've ever, you know, had a job that, that that's difficult, but any job after a while, if you're out there 10, 12 hours a day, it's going to wear you out. I had a job one time um, on cement forms, putting in foundations when I was a teenager. I weighed 125 pounds, and some of those forms weighed 125 pounds. You had to lift them up. That was hard. At the end of the day, I came home, took a shower, ate, and went to bed to get up at 5 o'clock the next morning. This is what Pharaoh's trying to do. He's trying to get these people tired so that all they can do is work, eat, and sleep. And the sleep was probably limited. So I almost wanted to wear the Hebrews down to nothing. So in verse 12, we're told the strategy didn't work. Against all logic, the nation continued to grow in the face of prosecution and hardship. The number of Hebrews was so numerous that they caused dread for them. They were afraid of them. And the harder the Egyptian punished the nation, the hardier, the hardier they grew. As hard as they could come against them, they still were able to be well and in good health and have families. And the heart of the Egyptian punished the nation with hard labor. They just, the nation just grew. Um, this is when, when God is there. Nobody can beat God, believe me. Uh, this is exactly as God intended it to be. He's making the plan. Things are happening. In their weakness, God's strength was shown to the Egyptians. As weak as they were, and I know in their weakness, they could show strength like any of us. You know, if we get sick or something like that, or if we're doing things, our weakness is God's strength. He can come in and work in our lives. He can help us. If you get a critical disease or anything like that, we never take our eyes off the Lord. You know, if something happens where, you know, you you get um, crippled or anything like that, you know, it's it's looking at what you have and what God has done and understanding why it happened that way, you know. Why did this happen to me, Lord? Wait a while. I'll show you what it is. I'll, 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 you'll learn. And sometimes it takes years. You know, you look back and you think, okay, I got it. And then all of a sudden God reveals something else, you know. And that's what he's doing to the Egyptians. He's saying, hey, you can't beat my people. You cannot beat them no matter what. And that's what he's showing to the world today with the nation of Israel. They are incredible in every area of life, medicine, uh, armament, uh, in biological things, doctors, you name it. Uh, they're, they're absolutely incredible. They have cameras over there that are absolutely unbelievable. You'd think that, uh, you know, a simple camera is, is uh, nothing. Well, they take a camera and they can do 200,000 frames per second with a camera. You know, you think, well, how could that happen? Well, God's working with them. Gives them the right people, puts it in the right scientist's mind, and out comes a great product. And that's what's going on here with the, with the uh, slaves. Um, and the New Testament echoes the truth 
We see church history repeat this. Whenever the church has suffered under the worst persecution, it has grown the fastest. You know, when the church is under fire, it's going to grow. God will not let it die. And, um, you know, this is what's going on, and we have to pray for today is that Christianity grows, you know, before the end times, so that more and more people will be saved. It's not to grow like this church into a thousand people. It's more to have more people to the Lord going to heaven and the more people out there spreading the word of God, you know. And, and that's what it's all about. And God works that way through us. You know, he gave us the Bible. We could read this Bible for the next hundred years, all of us, and we would still learn something a hundred years from now in reading this. And I think we're going to learn a lot about this when we get to heaven. We're going to see the different things, and the Lord's probably going to say, okay, bring in example number one. This is what you guys were thinking about, but this is what it is. And we'll be like, wow, that's amazing, God. And we'll be thankful for that. So don't we want that for everybody? We really do. I mean, even people that we have a hard time with, you know, might be a neighbor or some, you know, if you're in school, or some kid picking on you or something like that. We should always want to look at them in love, and it's not easy sometimes, and, and give them the word. Of, give them something. Give them one verse out of the word of God. Give them Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Something grace, something short. Okay, we're going to look now from uh, verses 15 to uh, 21. Then the king, king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other was named Pua. We don't see those names around anymore, so it's kind of different, right? Um, in verse 16, he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Killing babies coming out of the womb. That sound familiar? There's different things going on in this country this way. We have to be loud and clear about this to people. We have to be loud and clear and says, you're murdering these children. You're taking their lives. You know, the first thing somebody looks at when you go in the hospital, you know, you might have a heart attack or something like that or stroke or you just, you know, might have gotten a bad night. What's the first thing they look at? Your heartbeat. Oh, he's alive. Oh, she's alive. Okay, she's got a heartbeat. Great. This baby right here in the story is alive. It's coming out of the womb. It has a heartbeat. It's there. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. This is going on in the world today. In in China, this has been going on for years. Um... They all want a son. All these families want a son to, to prolong their families and stuff like this. So what's happened is when a girl's born, they drop her off by the side of the road or they take its life. I mean, just and how many people are yelling about that in the world today? I don't know. Look at the numbers in abortion. We're worried about COVID, but the numbers of abortions in the world are greater than any of those numbers. So why aren't we louder? We need to be much louder, but we need to be getting it through the word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to tell people it's wrong and to stand up for it 
and not be afraid of consequences because God will have our back. Put on the full armor of God. It's all in the front. He's got our back. He's got our six o'clock. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, he says, hey, it hasn't changed. Um, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian woman, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. It's telling them maybe this wasn't really true, you know, but this is what the answer that they gave. And, um, you know, they, they had quick birth. I mean, some women are in labor for a couple of days or a day. I mean, I don't think a guy could go through that. I don't think we could do that. You know, we just don't have that makeup, but women do. Thank God for that. And, you know, it's, it's got to be really difficult. You know, it's, it's very painful giving birth and stuff like that. So, um, but the midwives said they were, they were giving birth very quickly. So in verse 20, so God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. They're growing again. They're still growing. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Um, so the Pharaoh gives directions, uh, basically, to begin killing all the male children at birth. But the midwives aren't going to go along with that. And they get blessed for that by the Lord. The Lord gives them homes, gives them families. The plan was to make it look like the children died at birth. It wasn't say that Pharaoh killed them, you know. But they wanted to disguise it. We see that in the news, too, with the way that things are set up and, you know, uh, these, these places that these young women can go or, and have abortions and stuff like that. But they, they give it different names, and they try to disguise it. But it's still taking the life of a child. Um, in that day, Jews counted authenticity through the father. If you were a Jew, if, uh, you were a Jew if your father was a Jew. So the nation lost a generation of boys, then the girls would have married Egyptians. That's what he was thinking. They don't have any boys in the Hebrew nation, then they'll come over and marry ones in, in our generations. Um, so God intervened to protect the integrity of the nation of Israel. He ensures these women were God-fearing and unwilling to obey Pharaoh's instructions. And when Pharaoh realized that the young Jewish boys were still running around, the midwives gave an excuse. Jewish women are vigorous and give birth before midwives can intervene. It's a lie, but one intended to protect God's people in the face of greater sin, similar to the choice that Rahab made, you know, when, the, uh, when she faced the spies coming in and, and kept them and uh, she had the life of herself and her family saved by that. So as a reward, God established a household. He gave them favor. He gave them, you know, places to live. He gave them a family, meaning he gives them husbands and families and rewards for their faithfulness. So like his father, Aminatop's plan failed to destroy the people of Israel. So we see that. And then the next uh, Chapter 2 goes into talking about how uh, Moses was found and things like that. But um, the emphasis really, uh, we should know the book of Exodus. We should know it very, very well. We should know the history of Israel. We should know it very, very well. Because 
with the way the world's going today, we're going to be there and have to be beside him. It might be sooner than later. You know, I don't know when that's going to happen. Only the Lord knows when that's going to happen. But we can be voices. We can be voices of speaking up for a country that needs to be spoken up for. I know that as an army and things like that, they're very good, very strong. But they still have small numbers. They're not large. Um, But, you know, in reality, they want to be independent. I was in the army in 67 when the Six-Day War started. And um, our uh, staff sergeant came in and said, hey, Israel just got attacked by another nation, and we're going to be on our way over there in a couple of days. So he said, so what do you want us to do? He says, just get ready, get your things ready, and, and you know, get the um, different weaponry that we needed. Started loading on C-130s and stuff like that. So it only lasted six days. We never knew what we were really going to go there for. But the truth of it is, I was talking to an Israeli soldier a little bit while after that, he told me, we don't need your help. We have God. God is on our side. And that's what it really is between the United States Christians and the, the, uh, the nation of Israel. We have God on our side. Same God. Same Trinity. So we should always be looking for the opportunity to do something for Israel and to help them in a way that's going to be meaningful. So um, why don't we pray for a minute, and then we're going to have communion this morning. I'm going to get myself out of the way here on my roller skate. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for this day, and we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. And we thank you that we live in a nation that is so blessed. We're going through a difficult time now, Lord, but I pray that we... Learn what it is that we're going through and why it is. And we can encourage the world. We can encourage this country. And we encourage our government to stay the path. Um, of, and, and as Christians, Lord, we should be praying for them every day. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you from where we are. And we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.